0: Actung, actung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making
2: You Talk. And today it's not Al and I chatting, it's Al reading a chapter from my new book, Brothers
0: in Arms. Chapter 26, entitled Luck. Chapter 26. The Red Badge of Courage. On Friday, the 24th of November, the regiment, though still standing, moved out of the front and headed to the town of Schinnen, some 15 miles to the west of Geilenkirchen in liberated Holland. It was a place that was familiar enough to most of them, as they had paused there en route to Pallenberg before the last battle. Now, on their return, the local inhabitants turned out to give them a warm welcome back. Stanley Christopherson, for one, was very touched by this, and by the genuine distress and tears of those who had housed men who had not survived the fighting. His second-in-command, Major the Lord Lee, the Baron, once again set up regimental headquarters at an inn in the town, and both he and Christofferson got comfortable rooms with a shared bathroom. The bath, the Baron confided, cost him three bars of chocolate, but he considered this a worthwhile exchange. The Colonel was not about to disagree. Christofferson had been assured his men would be given a decent rest, but, as was so often the case, it wasn't to be quite the complete rest promised. Rather, he was to take command of a 30 Corps mobile force, known as Fox Force, which would include the 43rd Division Recce Regiment, one squadron of horse guards, armoured cars, and a battery of anti-tank gunners, in addition to the SRY. Two troops were to be constantly at four hours' notice, one squadron at 12 hours' notice, and the remaining two at 24 hours, and all in rotation. Fox Force had little to do, however. The Germans didn't try to counter-attack, and no one higher up the chain was in much of a mood to try any major new offensive just yet. The terrible grinding battles of the Scheldt estuary had finally come to an end earlier in November and the first Allied ship reached Antwerp after a mammoth mine-clearing operation on the 28th, four days after the Sherwood Rangers moved back to Shinnan. Millions of shells, more tanks, more trucks, more jeeps, more everything, would have to flow into Antwerp before the final phase of the war in Europe was launched. All of which meant that, for the time being, while the Sherwood Rangers would remain on standby, they could at least afford to take things a little easier. At any rate... Baths and entertainments were laid on, and the Corps commander visited and told them all how well they'd done and assured them that, as far as he was concerned, they were his most experienced armoured regiment. I suppose, remarked Stanley Christopherson, Corps commanders must say nice things about troops just out of action, but I do feel that he was sincere in what he said. Horrocks' visibility and the obvious effort he had repeatedly made with them since taking over 30 Corps were certainly appreciated. There was an investiture ceremony, too, at Brunsum only a few miles from Shinnan, where Montgomery himself pinned a DSO onto Christopherson's chest and gave MCs to Jack Holman, John Semkin and Stuart Hills, and an MM to Sergeant Doug Nelson. Padre Skinner also attended and was a bit put out by the Field Marshal's appearance. Monty had turned up at Investita in battle dress with dirty cap and a long green pullover hanging out, he observed. Poor show. Photographs were taken, the SRY boys looking relaxed, cigarettes in hand, and still, impossibly fresh-faced, despite the traumatic experiences they'd endured. John Semkin, despite long years of war, appeared as young-looking as ever. Perhaps it was because he knew he would soon be heading home. A repatriation scheme known as Python was being introduced. Those who had served abroad for four and a half years or more, with less than six months' leave, were eligible. This was potentially catastrophic for Stanley Christopherson, as throughout the regiment there were more than 100 men who fitted that bill. However, there was a caveat to the scheme. Those who took it might then be eligible for reposting at some point, but to a different theatre and with a different unit. The alternative was to opt for one month's leave with the promise of a return to the same regiment. Most, much to Christopherson's relief, opted for the latter option. John Semkin was not among them, however. It seemed that Christopherson, Young and Skinner had all agreed his nerves were just beginning to show signs of fraying. He had done enough. He'd done more than enough. He'd led his squadron from the front, shouldered gargantuan responsibilities, nurtured and guided fresh young officers, helped drive tactical innovations that had contributed to making the regiment one of the finest in the British army, and had overseen some of the many triumphs it had experienced. He would be profoundly missed. But they needed to let him go. He knew it, too. That was my last battle, he said to Guilenkirchen. I lost my touch after that. After that, I was finished and I was invalided home. For those remaining, December proved a time to relax and catch up on sleep and rest, but also, as always, to reflect. Padre Skinner had held a church service soon after their arrival in Shinan, but he felt it hadn't gone well. Everyone too tired, he scribbled in his diary, too many casualties fresh in mind. For anyone, death was the great unknown, impossible to comprehend the ultimate and terrible sacrifice. Most arrived at the front line apprehensive, not a little scared, but not believing they would be among those killed. After all, how could one think that when death was so final, so unimaginable? But exposure to the brutal realities of front line combat soon changed everything. Blackened, charred corpses, mangled bodies, dead Germans repeatedly run over and flattened like dead rats on the road. It was grotesque, horrible, ugly and brutally shocking. Everyone soon realised the same fate could befall them, that it could be their body burned to a crisp or mangled or atomized by a shell. And so, for anyone joining the regiment, the prospect of being badly wounded or killed soon started to weigh heavily, like a dull ache or a grey fog that covered the world like a shroud. Some became fatalistic. Others started to lose their nerve and become increasingly jumpy or bomb-happy as the statistical realities became apparent. Quite simply, statistically, No tank man had a chance of surviving unscathed. Whether one was obliterated, badly wounded or lightly wounded was, to a very great extent, a question of chance, the turn of the head, a movement to the right, a momentary lack of concentration, happenstance, or simply the relentlessness of what they were doing, which meant that, at some point, luck was bound to run out. There wasn't a single crew who had landed at D-Day that hadn't had their tank hit at some point. Knowing that, At any moment, it might be your turn inevitably preyed on the mind. And increasingly so as time went on. To advance into the unknown, wrote Peter Mellows, one can imagine an anti-tank gun or minefield every inch of the way. Stuart Hills similarly found this aspect of tank warfare strained the nerves, the feeling that at any moment the fatal shot might come. It was easy initially to feel a sense of invulnerability once in a tank, but that quickly evaporated, replaced by a growing feeling that one's tank... Had become everyone's target. As Mellows pointed out, the tank commander's field of vision was limited even with his head out of the turret. As you look out at the unfolding landscape, he wrote, you feel as if a thousand eyes are looking at you from behind anti tank guns, mortars, and snipers' rifles, not to mention panzerfausts and mines strewn in your path. Advancing through a barrage of shells, mortar, and machine gun fire requires a considerable amount of concentration if one is to keep one's sense of direction. And of course, one had to keep watching the other tanks in the troop and squadron and issue orders. If one failed to read the ground properly, or wasn't watching keenly enough, or couldn't react with swiftness and clarity of mind, then one could well be knocked out. Unfortunately, noted Mellows, many of my friends were killed in this manner. Seeing men being killed, or body parts strewn across the battlefield was traumatic, but for many the first dead man they saw was invariably the worst. The shock of death is, I suppose, noted Stuart Hills, something that every man in action soon gets hardened to, and reactions are less painful than death under peaceful surroundings. Losing friends was difficult, though, no matter how inured one had become to death in general. David Render had been devastated when Harry Heenan had been killed, just as John Semkin had struggled to come to terms with seeing Ronnie Hill atomised before his eyes at Alamein back in October 1942. Render had become harder, less forgiving of the enemy or anyone who got in his way. Peter Mellows was distraught that Bing Crosby had been killed, but he worked out early on that in order to survive mentally, he had to create a shell around himself and simply not allow any personal feelings or fears to affect him. So, on the face of it, he wrote, one was not moved by fear, sorrow or compassion, whatever the situation. If you failed to create this shield, you would crack up in the end. And be of no use to anyone. Everyone understood that the chance of becoming a casualty was unspeakably high. The Sherman had a reputation for brewing up and incinerating its crews, and came with a number of black human nicknames, like the Ronson after the cigarette lighter, whose slogan was lights every time, or Tommy cookers. There was a perception that this was down to the engine and fuel, but in reality, fires were usually started by ammunition igniting inside the tank caused in turn either by the missile that hit it or by spalling, the spattering of white hot bits of metal from the inside of the hull or turret. It was actually comparatively rare for a tank to brew up immediately. Usually a fire, if it was going to happen, took a few moments to catch as it was a secondary event to the initial hit. This gave crews a chance to get out, although it was obviously harder for those already injured to do so. Furthermore, whether a tank was likely to burn was also down to how much ammunition was in the hull at the time it was hit. David Alderson's tank, for example, burned and the turret blew off near Nijmegen because they'd yet to fire and so the tank was full to bursting with ammunition. The same was true of Lieutenant Campbell's tank at La Bigne during Bluecoat. A number of different studies were made at the causes of tank casualties. One, using a sample of 575 injured tank men, concluded there was no evidence to support the view that Sherman's were more likely to brew up than, say, Churchill's or Cromwell's. Another, examining 333 armoured fighting vehicles and 769 personnel, showed that in cases where tanks were knocked out by armour-piercing or hollow charges, such as a Panzerfaust, the chance of a major fire developing was 65% for Sherman's and 73% for Fireflies, but only 36% for Cromwell's. Of course, these statistics did not specify whether the tanks surveyed had been hit with a lot, a little, or some ammunition on board, and nor did they say at what stage the fires erupted. One cause of the discrepancy might have been the fact that the independent armor brigades, equipped with Shermans, were invariably in the vanguard of infantry led battles and leading the way, whereas the Cromwells tended to be in armoured divisions and were units of exploitation brought into the fray once the breakthrough had been made. There was a reason why the Sherwood Rangers had already got more battle honours than any other armoured unit, and that was because they had been in more battles. The greater the number of battles, the greater the number of casualties. Interestingly though, despite understandable fears of being burned alive, only 25% of tank crew casualties suffered burns, and some 50% of all of them occurred outside rather than inside the tank, a statistic agreed upon by both of the reports cited above. In other words, 75% of tank crew casualties were not caused by fire. The reports also showed, as expected, that tank commanders were significantly more likely to be wounded or killed than other crew members. This, of course, was partly because they spent most of the time in combat with their heads, arms and shoulders exposed, but it was also because during an action they spent more time than others clambering down and talking to the infantry or other tank commanders. The lap gunner was the least likely to be wounded inside the tank, while the operator and then the gunner had the most dangerous positions within the tank. It was also statistically more dangerous being in the turret than in the hull. Interestingly, the prime reason given for being outside a tank was making tea, 22% of cases, whereas escaping accounted for just 16%. This was not quite as ridiculous as it might first appear. A Pavlovian response to a pause in activity among all British soldiers was to make tea. It was something to do, an energy boost, and a culturally ingrained morale booster. Yet, as the statistics showed, it was all too easy to be caught out by a sudden stonk while doing so. To that end, Arthur Reddish had been very sensible to brew his tea inside rather than outside the tank at Geilenkirchen, no matter how questionable an idea it was to use a primus stove in a tank turret. Statistics are all well and good, and make for interesting analysis, but the bottom line was this. Being a member of a tank crew was an exceptionally hazardous occupation. So often in the war, technological advances in weaponry developed faster than man's effective means of operating it. Lancaster bombers could drop immense amounts of ordnance with increasing accuracy as the war progressed, yet the men flying in these tin cans were no better protected by the end of the war than they were when the Lancaster was first delivered to frontline squadrons in early 1942. By August 1944, Fireflies had been issued with a new kind of shell, an APDS, armour-piercing-discarding sabot, which when fired had a velocity of over 4,000 feet per second. The dreaded German 88mm fired at around 2,900 feet per second. That was quite a difference. Yet Shermans remained underarmored, and were deeply uncomfortable places to be, the hatches barely big enough to offer an escape route, and the concoction of fumes, dust and grit as noxious as when they first appeared on the battlefield in North Africa. Shermans were so effective because there were lots and lots of them, and they were reliable and quick-firing. The overall aim of the Allies was to win the war as quickly as they could with as few casualties of their own as possible. However, the speed part of the deal meant that casualties were still inevitable, and that there would be lots of them. One way around this was for the Allies to use technology, mechanisation and their huge global reach to limit the numbers of those directly in the firing line. On the whole, this strategy worked very effectively. In the British Second Army, for example, 43% of all troops were service corps of varying kinds, while only 14% were infantry and 8% in armour. The rub, however, was that those in the infantry and the tanks were in for a disproportionately tough time. The chances of these men escaping unhurt were actually lower than for their equivalents in the 1914-18 war.
2: Well, we're going to take a short break now, but Al will soon be back with more from Chapter 26. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Velux XC. Juvederm Velux XC is an ejectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Velux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit juvederm.com. That's J U V E D E R M.com.
0: Much, then, was expected of these men, and much was expected of the Sherwood Rangers, as they were time and time again flung into the battle. It was the task of Stanley Christopherson, above all, to ensure they continued to function and operate effectively, an exceptionally difficult challenge that was all the harder now that Stephen Mitchell had left the regiment. Really, such was Mitchell's experience, he should have had his own regiment to command, and Brigade continued to write to Christopherson, asking him to recommend his friend for such a post. Mitchell, however refused to let him do it. Eventually, however, the decision had been taken out of their hands. The price of Rupert Lee and his men and tanks from the Royal Gloucester Hussars was Stephen Mitchell. Christofferson had no choice in the matter. It seems the squadron leaders did not think a great deal of the Baron. His stature, the ever-red face, the quiet demeanour all made him a somewhat comical figure to them, and because of his lack of experience, he was not taken quite seriously enough. He was a joke, said John Semkin flatly. This was possibly a bit harsh, and it seems Christofferson liked the Baron well enough, but they were certainly not bosom friends, let alone the soul mates, as Semkin put it, that Stanley and Stephen Mitchell had been. As a consequence, suddenly, at one of the most difficult moments in the regiment's journey since D-Day, Christofferson was at R.H.Q. without any of his old mates. Nobody about Stanley had been in the regiment for any length of time. Said Semkin of this moment in the regiment's journey across Northwest Europe, they didn't know the men. The only shoulder he could weep on was either the Doctor or the Padre. So Stanley lived through all this, completely isolated, coping with all these bloody infantry generals and brigadiers. He did at least have the Padre and Doctor, as Semkin pointed out. Many times after an O-group, noted Skinner, I sat up with him while he talked the day over, worrying over what had happened. If he had done this or that differently, would this man or that have not been killed or wounded? Skinner found there was little he could say. He hoped, though, that by listening as the colonel got these worries off his chest, he was helping in some small way. Christofferson did now have the companionship of a pet dog, however. The animal had been given to him by a Dutch couple with whom he'd been billeted during their stint near Nijmegen. It was only a puppy and had been told it was a pedigree pincher. Although it seems Christofferson was the only one to believe this, everyone else thought its heritage considerably less pure-blooded. He named it Beak and trained the dog to sit and not move until he whistled, but was less assiduous in training him not to bark. Frenchie Houghton, the new adjutant, loathed the dog. Beak also had the habit of snapping at the heels of anyone he considered an enemy, and pointedly lacked the ability to discern who was German and who wasn't. Nonetheless, Beak soon proved devotedly loyal to Christofferson and brought him considerable comfort, and no one was going to begrudge a man a rather noisy and only partially trained pet puppy when the CO had such an incredible burden on his shoulders. Outwardly, at least, Christofferson was as cheery as ever, managing to strike the very difficult balance between authority, likability, and approachability. He continued to smile and laugh, to take pleasure in the ridiculous, and to fight tooth and nail for the well-being of his men. His compassionate treatment of John Semkin, sending home possibly his most valued subordinate, was a case in point. And he also ensured that the men were rotated on leave, in Brussels and elsewhere. This was good news for Arthur Reddish, who was finally allowed to head to the city legitimately. He was especially pleased about this because during his last time there, when he was AWOL, he had met a Belgian girl called Claire. She was married, it had been a brief fling, and he'd not expected ever to see her again. Yet, on his return to Brussels, he looked her up and discovered her husband had been called up into the Belgian forces and was away. Those four days were the nearest I'd been to heaven, noted Reddish. Me? I couldn't have enough of that girl. He got back to the regiment to discover John Semkin was on his way home, although he arrived in time to wish him farewell and to thank him. Reddish reckoned Semkin had taught him a lot, and told him so. And so was Trooper Savage, Reddish added, grinning. Over the past few years, the three men had spent a lot of time together, one way or another. Semkin might have been the officer and a troop and then squadron leader, but Savage had taught Reddish other more worldly skills. Ah, replied Semkin, you'd learn far more from him than from me, Red. Preparations were underway for a new offensive to take the great forest of the Reichswald and push up towards the Rhine beyond Klever and Goch, essentially the same operation they'd been preparing for when they'd been in the Nijmegen sector. This, however, was promptly cancelled when the Germans launched their shock counterattack through the Ardennes in the early hours of the 16th of December. Operation Wacht am Rhein, Watch on the Rhine, was entirely Hitler's brainchild and was intended to drive on to Antwerp and split the Allies in two. It was no accident that it was launched through the Ardennes, the scene of the Fuhrer's greatest victory back in May 1940. Preparations were made in the utmost secret, using four armies in all and two main striking forces, the 5th and 6th Panzer Arm More than 400,000 troops had been amassed for the attack, along with 550 panzers, 660 SPs, and over 4,000 anti-tank guns and artillery pieces. December was chosen to limit the interference from Allied tactical air forces, but as the Allies had discovered attacking in such conditions, and it was now freezing cold and snowing, brought a host of other difficulties that would affect any fighting force. That such forces could be assembled at this late stage of the war was extraordinary, and the scale of the operation certainly caught the Allies totally off guard. No one was expecting the Germans to counterattack in such strength, not least because it made little sense militarily to do so, as the attacking force could not possibly hope to attain its objectives. Large though it was, it was not remotely big enough, and certainly not well-fuelled enough, to reach Antwerp, which meant it could only end in failure, as Hitler's generals were well aware. Although the attack was launched at a quiet part of the American line and initially forced them back, the US Army was not the French Army of 1940, and it was winter, not summer. Very quickly, the German plan began to unravel. At Shinnon, the Sherwood Rangers were as dumbfounded by the attack as everyone else when the news reached them, two days later on the 18th of December. It was rumoured the whole of 30 Corps would be shifted south to help, and Frenchie Houghton, the adjutant, who had been in Paris, hurried back, convinced he would reach Shinnen only to find the regiment already packed and en route for the Ardennes. The regiment was not called upon, however, and even better, the planned operations into the Reichswald were cancelled. So the Sherwood Rangers would not be imminently leaving Shinnen after all. Even Padre Skinner had allowed himself some leave in Brussels, heading off on the 5th of December in the RHQ jeep with Frenchie Houghton and Dick Holman. There they had decent dinners, went to an ENSA show and had a few drinks, Although Skinner was feeling increasingly lousy, in truth he'd been struggling with his ongoing ear problems and feeling under the weather for a while, and so spent a day undergoing tests at the 111th General Hospital and being poked, prodded and peered at. The medics didn't find anything sinister, though. Too much cold and wet, tiredness, he noted, and overmuch noise of gunfire. They were due to head back on the 8th. Four days was the limit for every man. But when the time came, there was no sign of Frenchie. Eventually, he'd appeared at the hotel around nine that morning, swearing, with no money left, and claiming to have been drugged. Silly ass might well have been, added Skinner. Leave and medical tests aside, Skinner had made several trips back up to Geilenkirchen, searching for the missing men who'd been killed. At his final attempt on the 18th of December, abandoned tanks still wallowed in the mud, just as when he'd last been there, although they were now covered in snow and the ground had frozen solid how different it all looked now the big chill had set in. First he went to the FDS, then to US 19th Corps Rear HQ, and then to the US Grave Registration Unit. Eventually he was able to locate graves of three Sherwood Rangers who'd been missing, and then that of an unknown British. Among the effects was a single envelope that had definitely belonged to Corporal Whitfield, the fitter missing after detonating a mine on the 19th of November. Confirmed small part shattered body scribbled Skinner in his diary. Seemingly something I had missed on the minefield but collected by Americans after show over, the minefield cleared. The padre was much relieved. He really did hate to leave a single soul unaccounted for. Back in England, Peter Saleri was making good progress, now in his third hospital, Park Pruitt, near Basingstoke in Hampshire, a former asylum converted for military use. His recovery, however, would be slow and often painful, and had already involved numerous operations, mostly to take grafts of skin from his good leg to be grafted onto his right leg and arm. Despite these ordeals, and spending much of his first month or so in various plaster casts, he was aware he was more fortunate than some of his fellows in the hospital. There was Chips, a gunner captain who had been blown up in his jeep and broken his spinal cord. He would never walk again. There was also a Polish officer who had lost an arm and a leg. Celeri wouldn't ever be able to write with his right hand again, but he vowed to teach himself to write with his left, and if his movement ended up being a little impaired, well, he had to remind himself it could have been worse. Certainly, his life was no longer in danger, which was more than could be said for the men of the Sherwood Rangers still out in Shinnon. They had still not been called upon to help stem the flow of the German offensive in the Ardennes, Largely because the low cloud had started to disperse on the 23rd of December, allowing Allied air forces to resume their hammering of enemy forces on the ground, and because the Americans, after the initial shock, were doing extremely well on their own, so that although some ground had been given initially, key nodal points had been held. By Christmas Eve, the German attack had effectively been halted short of the River Meuse, and was already something of a busted flush. So, while American troops in the Ardennes were freezing in their foxholes, the Sherwood Rangers, were able to enjoy some small Christmas comforts. There was a Christmas present of sorts for Stuart Hills. A letter arrived for him and his brother Peter from his father, written back in May 1942 in pencil on rice paper. What kind of journey it had been on since being written and how it finally found him were mysteries he was unable to fathom. But at the time of writing, at least, his parents had been alive and as well as could be expected considering they were prisoners of the Japanese. Hope you are both well and happy, his father had written, our house shelled and destroyed by fire with contents. I am interned in large prison camps since December 25th, suffering rather badly from gout, otherwise well but very much thinner. He had been separated from their mother, but he believed she was nursing. He signed off. Much love to you both and best of luck, Daddy. Hills was shocked to receive it and unsure what to make of it. He had thought of his parents often, but while he was glad to have the letter and happy it had finally found him, He still had no idea what had become of them since it had been written. He could do nothing other than hope and pray for the best. Padre Skinner held a number of services on Christmas Eve, which proved far better attended than those of Christmas Day itself. Even so, Stanley Christopherson joined 21 others from the regiment for Christmas communion at 9am, Hartley sang a number of carols and listened to a stirring address from the Padre. Each squadron then held its own Christmas lunch with the officers waiting on the men, Although A Squadron and the LAD joined RHQ, which made life a little simpler. They ate fresh pork, tinned turkey, vegetables, and plum pudding, and each man was given a bottle of beer. Christofferson visited each of the squadrons in turn and wished the men a happy Christmas. By the time he reached C Squadron, he discovered Arthur Reddish's old crewmate, Sam Kerman, had somehow drunk six bottles of beer and stumbled towards him clearly half cut. During static periods, recalled Christofferson, he always caused trouble and was a grouser of great magnitude. But Kerman was also a brilliant wireless operator, and the Sherwood Rangers had always willingly tolerated awkward sods if they were able to make up for their oddities on the battlefield. After the Christmas lunch, the regiment laid on a party for the children of Shinnan, who, after all, had not had much to cheer about during the past few years. A large Christmas tree was put up at the centre of the village, Neville Fern, dressed up as Father Christmas, and George Cully, A Squadron's Essex Yeomanry Forward Observation Officer, as a clown, and together they rode down the main street on a sleigh, towed by one of Wrecky Troop's Stuart tanks, following behind with the children laughing and trying to clamber onto the sleigh. It was a typical Christmas, Stanley remembered, as the ground was white with frost and snow. Every man had been asked to save up their sweet and chocolate rations so that each child might have a gift, handed out by two of the men from the tree. Carly then performed some acrobatics, at which he was impressively skilled. It wasn't just the children who enjoyed his show by the Christmas tree. Finally, the officers had their own Christmas dinner. For the first time since leaving England back in June, the whole band of officers in the regiment sat down together as one. There was food, there was wine, and there was even a small gift for each of them, Christofferson's a packet of army biscuits. It was not much, perhaps, but it was the thought that counted, So ended my sixth and last wartime Christmas, he wrote. I had spent two in England, two in the desert, one in Palestine and one in Holland.
2: Well, thank you so much for listening and I'm sure you'll agree that Al read that absolutely beautifully. See you soon. Bye for now.
1: Hello listeners, it's Anita Arnand here from the Goalhanger sister podcast, Empire, which I host along
2: with... Me, William Dalrymple, and we are here to tell you about our new series on the founding fathers, the men who made America.
1: We wanted to look at the men who actually founded the country, who dreamt the dream, who wrote the words upon which a country would be born. What were they like? What made them do what they did? What did they actually believe in? And how did they come to play the role that they did in the American Revolution and the creation of America?
2: What really interested me about this was the contradictions. I mean, we expect these men to be great figures. We've seen the portraits in the galleries. We, we know the faces from the banknotes. But they're deeply complex figures. But in that, and in that blend of contradiction and intellectual power and writing genius and curiosity and raw ability, lies the nuance the complexity that allows us to understand them. And the United States is in many ways a reflection of their beliefs, their experiences.
1: These are the men who wrote the Constitution. These are the men who created the federal system in every way. They are totally fundamental to what American politics looks like today.
2: It all goes back to this extraordinary group of men.
1: Yeah, and they have rip-roaring yarns as well, let me tell you. So if you want to know why America is the way it is and who the men were who made it, you can listen by searching Empire wherever you get your podcasts.